to the AAP Board Review Podcast, which is a podcast reviewing high-yield, board-relevant topics in the field of physiatry. I'm Dr. Katome Obayashi, a PM&R resident at the University of Missouri. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Gill, also a PM&R resident at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. In this episode, we'll be covering knee pathology, more specifically patellofemoral pain syndrome, patellar tendinitis, and patellar subluxation. Special thanks to Dr. Carl Jockey and Dr. Annie Seavey from the University of Missouri for reviewing this episode. Disclaimer, the AAP board review series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the hosts and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. All right, let's get started with the case. A 21-year-old male with no significant past medical history presents to the sports medicine clinic with left anterior knee pain. He is a senior in college and plays on the school's basketball team. The pain started about two weeks ago with an aching sensation initially only present with jumping. Now the pain is constant and feels sharp and achy. He points to below the kneecap as the most painful area. He denies specific injury to the knee and has never had pain like this before. He also denies locking, catching, or instability of the knee. He has not yet tried anything to alleviate his pain aside from rest. He is worried that he won't be able to compete in his team's upcoming game. Upon exam, there is no significant swelling or redness of the knee. Pain is reproduced with passive flexion of the knee. He is uncomfortable with resisted extension of the knee. There is tenderness to palpation just distal to the patella. Anterior and posterior drawer, varus and valgus stress, and patellar apprehension tests are negative. Kotomi, what is the most likely cause of his pain? To answer your question, it's helpful to break down anterior knee pain into anatomical structures that could be affected. This helps form a differential for the causes of this pain. The most common structures affected with anterior knee pain are the patella, patellofemoral joint, patellar tendon or quadriceps tendon, tibial tubercle, and Hoffa's fat pad. Here are some pathologies that affect these structures individually. Patella could suffer from subluxation or dislocation. This can lead to a feeling of instability or apprehension on exam. The patellofemoral joint can have irritation, damage, or degeneration of the cartilage, such as with patellofemoral pain syndrome, an osteochondral lesion, or arthritis. Patellar tendon or quadriceps tendon can suffer from inflammation or changes of tendonitis and tendinopathy. Tibial tubercle can be afflicted with apophysitis or Osgood-Slaughter's disease. And finally, Hoffa's fat pad can be pinched between the kneecap and femur and cause pain. That's a great review, Katomi. So to summarize our case, we have a patient who presents with a two-week history of gradual onset, worsening anterior knee pain and initially present only with jumping. He's able to localize the pain to inferior to his kneecap. It's important to note that he did not have a defined injury to the knee. On exam, he has increased pain with flexion and resisted extension. When forming my differential, aside from the anatomical breakdown of knee pain, I also think about the chronicity of the pain. Since it was gradual without defined trauma, a patellar fracture or ligament tear is low on the list. The patient also does not have knee swelling, so intraarticular pathology is less likely. Lastly, there there is no locking, catching, or instability of the knee. This makes meniscus or ligamentous injuries less likely. Combining the location, history, and exam, I would say this patient likely has patellar tendonitis. That's fantastic and very complete reasoning. Tell me more about patellar tendonitis. So patellar tendonitis, um, also known as jumper's knee, is an overuse syndrome of the patellofemoral extensor unit. It is commonly seen in athletes who participate in high-impact activities like jumping or squatting. The eccentric load on the knee during these activities causes micro-tears in the tendon. 
Normally, tendon fibers are arranged in parallel. In the setting of repeated stress, remodeling of the tendon with fibroblasts and vascular granulation tissue can occur and cause microstructural disorganization. This leads to increased production of insulin-like growth factor 1 and nitric oxide synthetase, which can contribute to chronic pain, and COX-2 and interleukin-6, which can lead to an inflammatory response. That's amazing. Do you need imaging to diagnose patellar tendonitis? Typically, a good history and physical is all that is needed to diagnose patellar tendonitis. If the diagnosis is uncertain, imaging can help rule out other causes of knee pain like fractures or ligamentous injury. I do want to briefly talk about ultrasound, Mm -hmm. as this is an accessible modality and frequently used by physiatrists. With ultrasound, tendons will appear as hyperechoic or bright echo structures with fibrillar or fiber-like pattern of parallel alignment. One of the earliest changes of tendinopathy seen on ultrasound is tendon thickening. As tendinopathy progresses, the tendon will lose its normal fibrillar pattern and hypoechoic areas will be seen. Color Doppler is also used to look for neovascularity within the tendon, which is another sign of tendinopathy. Well, great. We've diagnosed patellar tendinitis in this patient. What's the treatment plan? So in general, rehab can be broken down into phases. Mm-hmm. One, first phase, reduce pain. Two, improve strength. Three, build function. And four, return to sport. So the first phase, reduce pain. Patient can strengthen the tendon with isometric exercises. It is important to start rehab with isometric exercises because isometric exercises places the least amount of stress on the joint. They allow for strengthening without causing increased pain and inflammation. In this case, an isometric exercise that is often prescribed early in the therapy is a basic quadriceps contraction that can be done in a sitting, standing, or lying position. Also, in this first phase, avoid aggravating activities, especially jumping, that could make this condition worse. NSAIDs and cryotherapy are also useful in this phase to reduce inflammation. Okay. So the second phase, improve strength. In this phase, we want to start adding load to the tendon or muscle unit. This is best done with eccentric movements. Common eccentric exercises for patellar tendinopathy include squats, leg presses, and leg extensions. Weight can also be added gradually at this phase as the patient tolerates. In general, the American College of Sports Medicine recommends training the tendon two to three times per week with three sets of eight to 12 reps separated by two to three minute rest periods. Okay. So the third phase will be build function. In this phase, we consider sport or activity specific movements. It is important that strength in the affected joint is close to being completely restored. We focus not only on the affected joint, but strengthening the entire kinetic chain. And then the last phase, return to sport. After we have reduced pain and inflammation and rebuilt strength and function, we can start using faster muscle contractions to develop power. This can be done by using plyometric exercises in sport or activity-specific training drills. Throughout this process, NSAIDs, cryotherapy, and adjuvant options such as joint-specific wraps and taping techniques may be used. Well, thanks for such a comprehensive rehab plan. I like how you broke it down into four phases, reducing pain, improving strength, building function, and then returning to sport. When might we expect this patient be able to return to play? Participation in a program like this one we just discussed is vital to preventing further injury. This is a gradual process and the patient's symptoms should be closely monitored as he or she progresses through the rehab program. Now that we have a good overview of anterior knee pain, let's move on to another case. Katomi, what do you have for us? Here we go. 
A 14-year-old female with history of asthma presents to her primary care physician with pain in her right knee present for at least three weeks. She reports the pain as dull, achy, and all over my kneecap. Mm -hmm. She is very active with a love for gym class, bikes almost every day with her friends, and has dance lessons four days per week. The pain is worse with activity and lingers after activity with rest. She has also noticed that pain and stiffness after sitting for long periods of time. She denies specific injury. On physical exam, you note genu valgum and pronation of her feet. There is mild tenderness to a patient over the lateral patella. Anterior and posterior drawer tests are negative, but patellar apprehension and grind tests are positive. Pain is also elicited when she performs a squat. So what do you think is the most likely cause of her pain? All right. So to summarize, we have a patient with poorly localized anterior knee pain. The pain is worse with activity and sitting for long periods of time. She did not have a particular injury. On exam, she has genuvalgum and pronation of her feet. There's pain along the border of her patella and patellar apprehension and grind tests are positive. Based on our discussion earlier regarding anterior knee pain, when we break it down based on location, it seems like this patient has dysfunction of both her patella and patellofemoral joint, likely a combination of patellar subluxation and patellofemoral pain syndrome. I totally agree. It sounds like she has a combination of patellar subluxation and patellar femoral pain syndrome. Can you tell me more about these conditions? Yeah. So first off, let's talk about the role of the patella. It lengthens the knee extension lever arm and allows for force transmission through the quads to the tibia. Patellar tracking is determined by both static and dynamic forces. Patellar subluxation results from malalignment of the patella within the trochlear groove of the femur. Displacement of the patella is usually lateral. Predisposing factors include lateral femoral condyle hypoplasia, which is something that is typically a congenital condition, increased genuvalgum, weakness of the vastus medialis oblique, and injury or laxity of the medial patellofemoral ligament that connects the medial femoral epicondyle to the medial patella. That's a great kinesiology review. The patella is at higher risk for subluxation when the foot is planted and an internal twisting force is applied with the, the knee flexed and in valgus position. Patients with subluxation may complain of anterior knee pain, giving away, and locking or catching sensation. However, the patella is still tracking within the trochlear groove, which distinguishes this condition from patellar dislocation. What about patellofemoral pain syndrome? PFPS, also known as runner's or biker's knee, is an overuse syndrome of the extensor unit of the knee leading to pain of the patellofemoral joint itself or the adjacent soft tissues. Although an exact cause is unknown, it is likely related to improper tracking of the patella and excessive mechanical load. Improper tracking is a reason why PFPS is seen with patellar subluxation. Predisposing factors include muscle imbalance, overuse, genuvalgum varum or recurvatum, patella alta, which is a high-riding patella, and malalignment of the, of the femur or tibia. Pain in PFPS is usually poorly localized and tends to be aggravated by weight-bearing, descending stairs, squatting, and prolonged sitting. What are common physical exam findings in these conditions? Well, it's important to evaluate the knee in static position and during movement. Common physical exam findings include an increased Q angle, coronal plane uh, knee malalignment with genuvalgum or varum, or sagittal imbalance with recurvatum, foot pronation, Pain with squatting and vastus medialis wasting or weakness could also be inspected. Tests specific for the patella and patellar motion include palpation of the medial and lateral patellar facets, you could have pain when you touch those, patellar glide tests, 
where you move the patella medial and lateral, noting the degree of movement relative to the width of the patella. It's considered positive if over 75% translation either way. The J sign, which is lateral tracking of the patella as the knee moves into extension. The patellar compression test, which compresses the patella into the trochlea and assesses for pain. The patellar apprehension test, which is positive if lateral pressure of the patella at 30 degrees of knee flexion causes patient pain or feeling of instability. And the patellar grind test. With the knee extended, the examiner compresses just above the knee while the patient contracts the quads. It's considered positive if there is pain at the patellofemoral joint. How are PFPS and patellar subluxation treated? Well, in general, rehab is approached in a stepwise fashion very similar to what we discussed earlier. Decrease pain and inflammation, build strength and function, and return to support. Specific exercises for PFPS and patellar subluxation include strengthening the vastus medialis oblique, which is often weak in these conditions, resulting in lateral tracking of the patella, patellar tracking exercises in general, and knee orthosis that can be helpful in patellar subluxation. Fantastic work. Let's touch on a few review questions and wrap up with a summary of key points. Sounds good. While examining the patellar tendon with ultrasound, how would you expect the tendon to appear? Would you expect it to be hypoechoic, hyperechoic, or anechoic? So normal tendon architecture is hyperechoic with a fibrillar pattern. You may need to address the probe for anisotropy. Great. Um, next question. What is the difference between patellar subluxation and patellar dislocation? In patellar subluxation, the patella is misaligned but still tracking within the trochlear groove of the femur. In patellar dislocation, the patella completely dislocates from the trochlear groove, although it may spontaneously reduce. That's correct. Next question is, what is the best way to improve muscle strength during early rehab of an anterior knee pain syndrome? Would it be running, cycling, eccentric resistance training, or sport-specific drills? Well, early on, I would recommend eccentric resistance training with later progression to sport-specific drills. Katomi, this has been great. What are your key takeaways from today's episode? So here are a few key points. First, when diagnosing anterior knee pain, think about the anatomical structures affected as they typically indicate a specific pathology. First, the patella. Flaxity or apprehension, think subluxation or dislocation. Mm -hmm. Next, patellofemoral joint. If the pain tends to be poorly localized surrounding the patella, think patellofemoral pain syndrome. Next, patellar tendon or quadriceps tendon. With point tenderness, pain with resisted activation, or pain with stretch, think of patellar or quadriceps tendonitis. And finally, tibial tubercle. If pain to palpation, think apophysitis or Osgood-Slaughter's disease in young folks. Second takeaway point, when looking at structures with ultrasound, it is important to know how to differentiate anatomical structures and signs of disease. First, muscles appear hypoechoic with a starry night appearance. Tendons will appear as hyperechoic or bright echo structures with fibrillar or fiber-like pattern of parallel alignment. And early changes of tendinopathy include tendon thickening. As tendinopathy progresses, the tendon will lose normal fibrillar pattern and develop hypoechoic spots. You can use color Doppler to look for new blood vessel formation. And finally, the Q angle is a commonly used parameter for hip and knee alignment. It is formed by the intersection of a line drawn from asis to patella, and a line from the patella to tibial tuberosity. Increased Q angle is seen in genu valgum, or knock deformity, 
a normal Q angle for males is 8 to 12 degrees, and for females, normal is 15 to 18 degrees. Thanks for that thorough review, Katomi. You're very welcome. Great talking with you. Thank you for joining us on the AAP Board Review Series. Thanks again to Dr. Carl Jockey and Dr. Annie Seavey for reviewing this episode. If you thought this episode was helpful, please share with others who may also value the content. Don't forget to follow the AAP on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date on the latest news and opportunities.